I could tell the moment I cracked open their covers, these two were going to be trouble. Name's Michael, Michael Hancock. Me and some folks run a little joint we like to call three-panel contrast, where we put a pair of sequence stories side by side and make them sing. Problem was, these two troubadours didn't want to show up for choir practice. <laughs> One culprit goes by Astro City, Tarnished Angel, by Kirk Busiek and Brent Anderson. The other Bruno's alias was Criminal Volume 6, The Last of the Innocent, by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. And sure, they were noir down to their spines, but superhero? Archie? The genre mix mixed me all up till I didn't know if I was coming or going or already there. They call them funny pages, but I wasn't laughing. I needed help before these wisecrackers put me in a Chicago trench coat. Lucky for me, my partners are two of the best, but I'll let them speak for themselves. I am Dr. Anna Papard. Um, I'm adjunct faculty at Brock University and doing odd jobs at various other places. And you guys know who I am already. Anyway, looking forward to the discussion. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University. Uh, and I would be the first to die in a noir universe. I would be the, the stool pigeon who squeals too soon and is quickly murdered. And the hero barely blinks an eye at it because those kind of people were born to die. I'm really wondering now whether I would be the innocent woman or the bad girl, and I'm the really fatale. not sure, and I feel like, yeah, like, I'm not sure which one I'd get slotted into. I mean, I'm a blonde now, but I used to have the dark hair, so I feel like now I'm straddling the divide. I'm not sure. I'm a stoolie, I think. That's mine. <laughs> All right, uh, let's rough up some ink and see what spills out. Anna, could you tell us about your text? I sure could. So, Astro City, created and produced by the core team of Kurt Busiek, Alex Ross, and Brent Anderson, is a superhero anthology series set in the fictional city of, you guessed it, Astro City. The first volume appeared in 1995 and has been publishing sporadically but consistently ever since, while attached to various publishers including Wildstorm and Vertigo. Counting all the Astro City comics and specials, over, a, over 100 issues have been published. The series has won numerous Eisner Awards and Harvey Awards, including awards for Best New Series in 1996 and Best Continuing Series the following two years. Over the years, it's evolved, as many creator-owned series do, from being an industry darling to have, having something of a cult following. But if you like the Astro City brand, it's pretty consistent across its 25-year history. The series takes a lot of inspiration from the pulp-ish heroes of the golden age of comics, as Michael's intro would have alluded to, but it touches on other eras as well. It's known for having somewhat of an optimistic flavor, despite being influenced by the deconstructive, gritty turn of comics in the 1980s. The story arc we read for this podcast is a perfect example of blending those tones so astro city tarnished angel collecting astro city the original series number 14 to 20 originally published in 1998 tells a familiar story of a friendless felon trying to start over and not get sucked back into his old life the twist being this felon carl donowitz aka steeljack is made of virtually indestructible metal carl has a tragic ish backstory in which he was sucked into gang life in his youth which resulted in him in killing another boy he's mobilized by guilt about that but also has complex feelings about superheroes who he taking inspiration from his deceased mother describes as angels hence the title in pursuit of superheroism he submitted to a super scientific experiment that gained him his steel hide but for a variety of emotional and practical reasons he was only ever able to be a supervillain when our story begins, Steeljack is being released from a 20-year prison stint. He's on the worst side of middle age and predictably can't find work as a huge, scary steel guy whose metal hands won't even let him wash dishes properly. He soon gets recruited by Donnelly Ferguson, a local crime arranger, to investigate a series of deaths involving <laughs> other supervillains. So begins Steeljack's lengthy, introspective descent into what does it all mean? Eventually, his suspicions land on a disgraced former superhero, El Hombre, whom he suspects of orchestrating a violent conflagration in which he plans to re-become a superhero by taking out a whole whack of supervillains in one fell swoop. Steeljack seeks out this superheroic honor guard for help to no avail, but in the conclusion, he successfully defeats El Hombre, now masquerading as the Conquistador, and earns some respect from the honor guard, as well as the villain-suffused Keeper Square community where he lives. Like a lot of Astro City comics, it's a conventional story in some ways, yet packs an emotional punch that comes primarily from the luxury of slowing down to spend time with the emotional introspection of the protagonist. 
Well, I did enjoy it. I've got some questions about the racial angles and thoughts about the shower scene, mm. which I'm sure we will talk about in due course. Thank you, Anna. Andrew, can you tell us about Criminal? Criminal Last of the Innocent is an award-winning four-issue story arc from the broader Criminal series, which received the 2012 Eisner Award for Best Limited Series or Story Arc. The creative team is led by the much-lauded Ed Brubaker, a seven-time Eisner Award winner himself, and famous creator of The Winter Soldier for Marvel Comics, and still waiting on his honorarium from the Disney Store. On visuals, we have an assemblage of Val Staples, Sean Phillips, and Dave Stewart. Criminal is a noir in the tradition of the great 1950s crime one-offs made famous in EC Comics titles like Crime Suspense Stories. Like these, the story is built around an intimate interior portrayal of a criminal as he undertakes his foul deeds, then seeks to dodge the noose forming around him. To this familiar mold, Criminal mixes in Betty and Veronica comics, an encounter with grief, and the existential consequences it can contain, as well as, somewhat surprisingly, a meditation on the meaning and value of friendship, despite the fact that literally nobody is a good friend in this comic, except Lizzie, who should perhaps be named Lizzie Sue, but I'll get to that. The plot is cliché, perhaps necessarily so. Riley is in debt and seeks to kill his rich wife for her fortune and to frame it on the man she is having an affair with, and not get caught. That part's important. In the end, Riley escapes judicial punishment for his misdeeds, but not karmic punishment, having lost the only person in the world who truly understood him. He walks off frame with the assertion that he is finally free, even whilst committing the exact same mistakes that led him to his desperate actions in the first place. He is a doomed man, blissfully unaware of it, thus leaving the reader with the kind of fundamental questions about human nature that the very best EC comics were likewise able to surface back in the 1950s. As Brubaker notes in supplemental material, quote, Yes, this is a story about a guy who wants to murder his rich wife. It's also about a lot of other stuff, and part of it is about comics and nostalgia, end quote. For me, then, the question becomes, what does Criminal do differently, better, or just for a contemporary audience? And I don't really have a good answer for that. The story is sophisticated in its psychology, but the trappings of the genres it adores also limit the story's potential. The female characters are pretty weak, existing to be either lusted over or killed or both. The 1980s setting tends to play out like a 1950s setting with a fresh coat of paint, rather than a directed engagement with the politics of that new era. Thus, there's a kind of self-indulgence to Brubaker's pastiche, dripping in nostalgia not just for a time or era, but for the writer's personal experiences of the comics medium. It's regressive and self-validating in ways, but deeply rewarding in others, with strong character work in the noir tradition, lending us the kind of haunting consideration of violence and human nature for which we heap praise on authors like Cormac McCarthy and Agatha Christie. And to Brubaker's credit, Criminal does indeed have the potential to undermine the rationalization of civilization that urges us not to reflect on what exactly we might do were we in Riley's shoes. This then is the essence of my perspective on Criminal. It is really good, and holds up quite well when compared to the works that Brubaker and co. are riffing on. The experience is more familiar than novel, and that feels a bit like a wasted opportunity to me for some reason, but it's a good experience and showcases some very strong artistic execution. Let's start with our personal history with these creators and with the series that they're talking about. We could even get into a little bit of our history with Archie, because as long as we're in the area, why would you give up an opportunity like that? <laughs> I had never actually read it before. I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with um, the EC Comics line. Um, I, I did some work on that for my dissertation. So it, this was really nice for me. Like it was all the things that Brubaker loves are things that I kind of love about the EC comic series as well. So as I said, I really enjoyed the nostalgia from that angle. Um, otherwise, I'm only familiar with Brubaker from some of his superhero work. Uh, so it was really cool to see what he could do. But also like like not surprising, given the sort of criminal-like inflections that you see to a lot of his Marvel work. So allowing mm -hmm. him to go full genre here um, feels just like fun. It's been interesting watching his creator independent trajectory that he this is pretty far into the criminal run but he's kind of still even with criminal uh i think on a kind of hiatus he is still dipping his toe in that area i think he's transitioned from or this noir pulp into like 80s action movies but it's still got a kind of weird noir going on 
yeah, those elements are kind of never gone. Like, it, like he started his career. Um, comics like low life which were clearly that kind of criminal inflection then he went superhero for a long time as i said he kept some of that ideology and then he goes right back into noir here with criminal and fatal and as he said even as he's moving to new things he's still keeping one foot in this genre so i mean the, the man is clearly doing what he loves i mean brubaker i've read a lot of his his uh superhero stuff i mean a lot of his captain america work and his work on daredevil as well um, I had not also I had also not read Criminal before, so this was also my first time. But of course, I'm aware of it. Um, my history with Astro City is a little bit. It's weird because when I was first starting to kind of get into comics, when I was first starting to get into comics scholarship, it was such a central thing that people talked about. Like yeah. it was like one of those texts mm-hmm. that people were just like, "Oh, like this is the series that's about superheroes with superheroes, and it's optimistic and introspective and all those things." I said in my intro, right? And a lot of the early books about superheroes really focused on Astro City a lot. And that's completely dropped out of the discourse. Like yeah. in the last like decade, no one talks about it anymore. And it was okay, so to read, I don't think I'd actually read this arc before. I know I'd read sort of at least the first 10 issues or so, like at least, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but I accidentally read one of the newer series, like for three issues before realizing <laughs> this was clearly not what we were supposed to be reading. And it was weird revisiting kind of, so I would have been reading the issues from about 2000 and uh, like six or eight or something. Some of the, some of the newer series, which is pretty similar to the older one with some mm-hmm. sort of more modern themes. You know, there was, you know, a story about a transgender superhero and stuff, which was, you know, was interesting if imperfect, but still I appreciated the effort. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really a weird series. I don't really know what to do with it in sort of the current context in which the superhero genre, like, within the big two and beyond it has kind of really multiplied and, and transmogrified into something else. But Astro City is just kind of still doing its thing. And it really just still is kind of the same series. Mm-hmm. See, I don't know. That's not like a good answer to your question, but I am sort of curious about what the current sort of cultural status of this series is like it going from this real darling of the industry to, as I said, the intro again, like, you know, kind of this cult series that you still see people talk about it from time to time, but it's sort of almost the way that people talk about, you know, those people who are still following, like, these are very different types of series, but Savage Dragon or Spawn mm-hmm. or something, you know, like, yeah. I mean, they still have their loyal fan bases and people who are continuing on with it. And other people are like, whoa, that's still happening because I it is not on my radar at all. And I'm curious about why that happens, because, again, checking in with some of the later ones, it's not that I think the quality has changed. I just think the industry has changed. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I just had questions and I was I was curious if, if either <laughs> of you had any thoughts about that, like in, in terms of your personal histories with this series. Like, did either of you read it when it was originally coming out? Not when it was originally coming out, but I think I had a similar experience to you that when I started reading comics in a more like engaged manner, I went back to it and like just devoured all of the collections that were out in the miniseries and so forth. If I remember correctly, the series is on ongoing hiatus right now that I think yeah. uh, part of the reason that it might've fallen off the map is that I think uh, Bizek himself had a lot of health issues that yeah. prevented him from a regular schedule. In its beginning, it was kind of about superhero history and nostalgia and speaking against kind of some of the grim dark movements but at a certain point in its history it becomes almost a nostalgia of astro city rather than a nostalgia of superheroes and that Mm. changes things just to add context to what um um, anna was saying i I think when it was coming out it was particularly seen to be picking up from a false start created by like watchmen in the dark knight returns Mm. um there was a perception in the industry that um the people who were imitating watchmen in the immediate wake of it got it wrong and they were just imitating the grim sort of violence stuff rather than the introspective subversions of the genre. Uh, And I think a lot of people looked at Astro City um, in maybe late 90s, early 2000s as a series that was the true continuation of, you know, this this mythical big three that we always talk about in comic studies somewhat errantly. Um, So yeah, I I think there were a lot of hopes pinned to it. Uh, And I, I think Tarnished Angel, for my money, let's say, uh, is easily the best story to come out of Astro City. Uh, it's the one that everyone references the most. It's it's the one that's taught the most. So I, I kind of share that sense that uh, maybe maybe this thing didn't move forward as much as we might have wanted it to, uh, that this is its I think, peak. I think it's certainly the most self-contained. And Yeah, for yeah, sure. I also agree that it's my favorite too. There's some of the single issues that I really enjoy, like the 
first one really focusing on Samaritan is like a wonderful, like, here's a look at Superman kind of thing. Do we want to touch on personal histories with Archie? I mean, my pithy comment for Criminal was going to be like, oh, it's just Riverdale. I get it. That might be uh, like an issue worth pursuing. Where's our level of familiarity with Riverdale and how does Criminal compare to that? I think is a question worth asking. I am not caught up on Riverdale. I was a big booster of it like years before it came out. I remember mentioning it in a <laughs> class I was teaching and like being like, you guys don't even understand. There's like this like Archie show because when I was teaching Archie in a comic studies class, I was like, they're, they're doing this Archie show that's supposed to be Archie meets Twin Peaks and it sounds wild yeah. and you're going to want to watch out for that. And like I was that was like two years before it launched. So I was I was in on the ground floor of Riverdale. <laughs> And there have been times, like, watching kind of the first couple of seasons of it where I was just, like, transported by what a perfect comics adaptation I view it as, you know, not in terms of it being directly similar to the Archie comics, although it's quite directly similar to something like Afterlife with Archie, but, I mean, it doesn't have zombies, but sort of the tone is very similar. But just in terms of it having the nonsense feel of comics in that you know in one episode Betty's suddenly a mechanic now and she had never been one previously which is exactly how things would work in a comic book and we might never bring it up again and yeah. things like that I know like if you if you hate comics and you hate that kind of thing I could see being really frustrated with that but to the degree that you can embrace Riverdale, you have to embrace it with kind of a comic book sensibility. And even like a, although Riverdale is a, is a heavily serialized show, there are sort of those elements of the non-serialized nature of Archie in which it is this town that is nowhere yet everywhere and anything can happen and yet nothing happens. And it just sort of captures that so perfectly. And so, yeah, like <laughs> I, I have like a little bit of like a transcendent philosophical experience with Riverdale in its early seasons, although I have yeah. not caught up on, I think I'm like two seasons behind now, maybe. I think I watched like up to season four, like I think I'm caught up to there, but I think we maybe are in six now. But anyway, those, those are some of my Riverdale thoughts. I don't want to get too distracted. So go ahead, Andrew. I do want to validate Anna's perspective. The pilot of Riverdale is a really good TV pilot. Like it is so good. And then I don't even know what it became. It got it just get, kept getting sillier and sillier to the point where it kind of imploded from its its David Lynch imitation. Um, the one thing I just wanted to say was that um, I, I think the Riverdale aspect is really important here. Not just like Riverdale, but like Archie. Um, I think it reflects Riley's mental state. The idea that he sees his past in terms of this, this Archie comics, Betty and Veronica rivalry that reflects his fundamental problem. Uh, he sees his goals as these sort of superficial fantasies uh, and, and that, that leads him to become an absolute monster. So I, I think it's really cool that you could take the idea of like liking Archie uh, and make it into the reason this guy's a killer. You know what I mean? There's, there's a nice kind of like meta commentary there that I find very dark in its humor. But I mean, also, I think makes perfect sense. I mean, one of the things I legitimately love about Archie, like classic Archie, is that if you're just reading it and spending any time thinking about it, it's it's really wild. I mean, the yeah. kids are basically trying to kill each other all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is like, they're setting up complex schemes in which they physically abuse each other for minor slights. I mean, it's really, really wild. And when, when I was when I would read Archie when I was you know what in like grade four or something like I used to read a lot of Archie and we used to like make fun of it but I think also that nature of which you know they're just really mean to each other in the comic I mean I always loved Reggie he's just so mean to everybody and he's the best and yeah there is like a lot of slapstick violence and cruelty in Archie that I think actually does appeal to you it's like we make fun of Archie as just like you know this like pap and like 50s nostalgia and everything it definitely is that but it is also a slapstick humor comedy series about teenagers behaving badly and trying to hurt each other and so I think it's easy to turn that into a very dark story if you apply even the slightest degree of realism to it. That's a great point. My partner is very into the Sweet Valley High series. I read a few of them and there's this, yeah, there's this very similar element of, wow, these, these teens are uh, behaving just wildly <laughs> and the, there's nostalgia and a vicariousness to it. Yeah, like that, a Shakespearean um, melodrama, but in a high school. It's really cool. Yeah, although Sweet Valley High, totally ready for a 
like Riverdale style reboot. <laughs> when you brought it up, I was assuming that had already happened. I was like, oh yeah, there's that like crimey reboot, right? But I guess there is not. It's it's been interesting for Archie in particular because it's had a series of revitalizations that I think took place shortly after this criminal volume, the Mark Wade run, yeah. everything that yeah. Agera Sacasa did, including the afterlife with Archie and the Sabrina Grimm stuff, the alternate futures where Archie marries various people. And there's Archie versus Predator, which is done in traditional Archie style, but is an absolute bloodbath of a comic. It's really proven adaptable to genre play in a way that it hadn't been for a very long time. Right. Well, I would say that Archie has always been very adaptable to genre play. I mean, it That's always true. had Lil Archie. Well, it always had a superhero universe within its universe. I mean, you could kind of do anything within that universe because you just have these archetypal characters that can be repurposed for whatever gag you want to use them for in the subsequent issue. That sounds like a good uh, segue, actually, into one of the questions I wanted to ask. Uh, how well does Brubaker perform that kind of genre transition here? Is there any character or move that particularly stands out? Anyone who gets notably short shrift? Well, I mean, maybe speaking to what Anna was just talking about, I think it's important that Brubaker is referencing a very sort of um, iconic and canonic version of Archie, right? He's not exploring the supplementary material. He's, he's basically looking back to the original comics uh, and sort of drawing on the Archie that we're all most familiar with. Um, he's using it to create that juxtaposition with the world that he's already kind of built. So you have characters who look like Archie characters and are in traditional Archie sort of story premises uh, and in stories that unfold over a singular page, like a newspaper thing. Um, but they're talking about things that Archie's not supposed to talk about. And <laughs> they're reflecting sort of adult, let's say, concerns that, that are really what criminal is all about, what the noir tradition is all about, being sort of um, vulgar and salacious. Um, so that's that's really the fundamental kind of kind of contrast that we're creating there, and I, I think it it works shockingly well uh, in, in terms of anybody getting like like left behind a little bit. Um, I could use more like Riley insert as the Archie character at times. Uh, I think I think the Jughead adaptation is maybe my favorite because I think it's got a lot of sort of rationality to it. It's a it's an extrapolation of like a realistic Jughead in a way. Well, his nickname is Freakout, and he yeah. has uh, <laughs> drug addiction problems. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jughead is always read as a stoner, right? Um, so I, I think there's a there's a connection there. Um, as I said, the, the, the female characters don't come off that strongly. And, and I think that maybe is a place that kind of doesn't work because they are still basically Betty and Veronica. Uh, whereas everyone else is a more fleshed out character from their um, um, counterparts in Archie. I was curious definitely about sort of the role of female characters in terms of one of the things that we arguably don't reckon with as with as much nuance as we should are some of the critiques against gendered violence that were part of the anti-comics crusade in the 1950s. I mean, yeah. I think that there is some validity to being like, hey, maybe all of these pictures of like mutilating women in stories that children buy maybe isn't the greatest, like best thing <laughs> that we could be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're not really able to have that conversation because, you know, obviously the anti-comics crusade is, you know, was a hugely problematic, specious, terrible thing that has ruined, that did ruin the comic book industry. You know, if, you know, we're going to take that hardline view of it, which, you know, I think is a pretty reasonable view to take of it. It certainly profoundly affected the comic book industry for, for many, many decades at the very least, and profoundly affected the perception of comics for pretty much their entire lifetime in the American context. So yeah, hard to hard to come up with good things to say about the anti-comics crusade. But at the same time, you have stuff here that's specifically referencing some of that stuff, like the use of the, the eye pick in the eye. Yep. Yeah. Well, Vertham, Frederick Vertham, who created um, the big, created, um, he was a central figure in the big scare against comics. He specifically argued that EC Comics had a whole bunch of eye gouging. And this has baffled critics forever because they didn't. Like, <laughs> like it, it had happened. So I think stabbing a, a woman in the eye with an ice pick was Brubaker definitely exactly as Anna is saying. Um, I'm sort of dismissing the critique against comics. Uh, and just to add to what Anna was saying as well, um, we've actually had critical conversations about how the Hayes Code in film um, created protections for women for a long time. So it does seem like maybe comics should 
have gotten around to this conversation uh, in terms of sorry, comic studies. Yeah, and I mean, I've suggested that in terms of superhero comics that, you know, not having you know the explicit sort of sexualized violence for for much of their history can create sort of safer spaces of desire in some ways um because some of that gendered sexualized violence is downplayed although you know it appears in metaphorical ways as well and right i mean one of the things when we see the turn toward grim and gritty comics in the 1980s is that <laughs> the first well we go to is let's rape every female character because that's a way to make every story adult and i think even just that example is like perhaps an argument for why some of the restrictions of the code were needed. This is Anna going on mic as supporting Frederick Wortham. That is not what I'm doing, <laughs> but I am saying that we struggle to have nuanced conversations about these things because yeah. of, I mean, to be honest, some of the hysterical reaction to the comics code's hysteria within a field that, and within a genre, within a, within a form that is just still in the American context struggling to be taken seriously it's really hard to have those nuanced conversations, but I think the violence against women angle and a lot of the, the racial stuff too, because we're them, as we all know here on the podcast was very concerned about racist caricatures and things as well. And um, that was a big part of his critique of, of comics. And I think that that was another very valid critique. Unfortunately, what happened there is by cutting out all the racism, racial caricatures, they cut out all of the characters of color for like 15 years. Yeah. But, you know, like <laughs> another instance in which we could have had a nuanced conversation about these things and didn't. And of course, this goes into all this complication of like, you know, were them for all that he cared about racial caricatures and stuff was limiting EC Comics ability to tell anti-racist stories because you weren't even allowed to depict like racial slurs, even in the context of critique. So it's complicated. But we got so off track of this question, but I did have <laughs> I did have sort of questions and I mean, concerns in a way about the violence and criminal to the extent that it's just referencing that. But is it doing anything with it? I that was like, exactly really was not you. sure. Yeah, I don't think so. But so like, I mean, what is it doing then? I mean, is it making the point that I mean, what like, I mean, I was interested in the way that it was aligning EC and Archie in the sense that. I could make an argument that both of those things are promoting certain visions of America and certain visions of gender and certain visions of success. And he's suggesting an alignment between those two things on some level. And I was interested in that possibility, although it's not something that we see sort of teased out. It's something that we would have to kind of bring to the narrative. It kind of raises the question of what would a critique of Archie, particularly the 60s and earlier, version that Brubaker's referencing, what would that critique look like? And I'm not quite sure it would look like this, that incorporating kind of shock elements that don't really appear in the original. I mean, there's things to critique about its approach to, I think, as we, in the context of Wertham, gender and race, but yeah, I'm not sure if this is the direction to do that the um implicit critique is is really just that archie was too sanitized right in order to be realistic or reflective of of actual reality it was this this fantasy vision of america and, and i think the fact that you have again this killer buying into that vision and pursuing that vision um that maybe forms the, the sort of sense of like what the consequences are uh, of archie's super hygienic teen culture representation that's just me reading that though yeah no i think that that's that makes a lot of sense but what do you do with the ec stuff then i mean yeah. it is like he's inspired by ec comics to put an ice pick in a woman's eye <laughs> i mean so it's a bit weird because it's it's certainly embracing the ec comics because that's its central inspiration i mean not just ec too but um you know crime doesn't pay comics and the whole sort of crime genre that ec yeah. was a part of so I wasn't really sure what to do with that again. I mean, we've had questions or conversations on this podcast before about differences between pastiche and parody and self-reflexivity and meta-narrative and all these different complicated literary terms. And I wasn't really sure where to classify this one because there is some commentary present, but it is also kind of just doing an old-fashioned story in some ways with mm -hmm. a degree of self-reflexivity. But is it just replicating some of the same political problems so. and silences of the past? <laughs> and to that extent, I mean, it bugs I think it loves I mean, it too much. Yeah. My, I think that's the issue. It just it loves EC Comics too much. It's not My willing to take critique them. Is that like, this is the sixth 
time uh, Brubaker is coming to this well kind of in Criminal. Yeah. Uh, not exactly in the same way. This is more, I mean, the the new thing in this one is the meta approach, not the story itself. Right. That the encounter with Archie and EC Comics, that's what's bringing to the table in this one. But the actual plotting and so forth is not that novel after the first five or so of this. Like, I feel like I'm being kind of a dick and just writing a different story with the same same influences where it would be, you know, a comic book about the ways that girls read Archie and the ways that they might have read that and romance comics and EC comics as well a little bit differently and how that might have shaped their lives. And I kind of am thinking it would be a lot more interesting story, especially because <laughs> this story with its heavily male perspective is just replicating a lot of myths about comics culture and anyway whatever but i mean that's not me this isn't that story so it's not fair for me to just be like i wish this was a different story i think this was a good story mm -hmm. but i definitely was frustrated by the ways that it replicates a lot of things that are a problem in every era of comics and is allowed to just get away yeah. with that because hey we're referencing the past yeah mm -hmm. i do have one charitable defense of it i think it has to be misogynistic because it's from riley's point of view do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that indulgence actually reflects his shallowness. So I think there's a reading to be had here where, you know, it, it is rejecting those things, but I don't think most readers are going to be reaching for that. I, I, think. I think if they included a rejection of him by Betty, that might have done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I think a legitimate critique can be had that the innocent character, Liz, is just too innocent. I kept assuming oh, there'd yeah. be some sort of twist with that character and again that's a case where i get that that's riley's perspective of her but if we're not going to question riley's perspective are we not supporting riley's perspective right arguably but yeah <laughs> it's the classic fallible narrator catch right let's explore the same question on tarnished angel <laughs> how is it bringing in its nostalgia element how is it incorporating that with its larger look at the noir genre Oh, God. I don't know if I have a good answer to this. I mean, <laughs> one of the ways that I struggle to read Astro City is that it has a lot of direct references, but it also incorporates so many different references from so many different things that this is a very uh, conventional pulp story, whatever, like detective genre story. I mean, the character is going to become a private detective. It seems pretty clear. And I think that is what happens to the character later on in the series. But um. I'm more interested in kind of the Astro City pastiche elements in terms of thinking about it almost from a Watchmen perspective of, is this a proposition for how the superhero genre could have been different without the anti-comics crusade of the 1950s, right? Because you have these very mm. pulpish heroes who are not sort of silver agey, really. They're really more from the golden age period in terms of, <laughs> I don't know, their directness and their, their goofiness and their even just the sort of their aesthetic and stuff. So, I mean, I'm not answering your question properly at all. And maybe I'll just kick it back to Andrew because I feel like I'm not really going anywhere with this question and you need to save me, Andrew. Okay. I, I mean, I don't have a strong take either, but the thing that I really like at the core of Astro City um, is how it explores the gulf between um, the superheroes as a fantasy construct and the average person. So mm -hmm. like, even if you get to have the superpowers, it's still not that easy to be a superhero. So Steeljack's longing to be a superhero and his empowerment through these, again, superpowers, um, would seem to solve the problem for all of us because we think the reason we can't be superheroes is because we don't have superpowers. But no, the whole point of this story is that it's way, way more than that. There is a society, there is a hierarchy, uh, and you are not at the top of it. And even just, again, this idea of like the angel um, really encapsulates that. And I, I mean, I, I've said before, this is my favorite issue of Astro City. This is one of my favorite comics endings ever with just Steeljack on the ground and he sees the, the, the angels coming for him and he's in awe still after all that he's been through. I, I really love that. So I do think there is like a kind of cool critique about um, the ways that we fantasize about superheroes manifesting here. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that too. Although I can't help but feel like my reading of it is like being, a, I'm so negative today, but my reading of it is being colored <laughs> a little bit by the episode that we did about Marvels. Yeah, I've been thinking about it too, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, we got into a lot of weird and interesting conversations there about, it seems optimistic that it is ultimately this very 
you know, once again, very masculine sense of inferiority that's sort of animating everything. And mm -hmm. then when I thought about how I didn't like Marvels as much after thinking about that, I was sort of liking this less because I was thinking about <laughs> that as well. Because there is just that thing where it's just... It, it's hopeful in a lot of ways and i really like that moment andrew too like i mean that was my favorite moment of the comic as well because it combines that hopefulness with despair right it is both things at once yeah. he sees the angels and he's so in awe of them and yet they fly over and don't lift him up right yeah he's learned nothing <laughs> yeah which is great i do definitely think that that was the the best moment in the comic but at the same time it's just sort of i found this story long like it just mm -hmm. it was a lot of Steeljack introspecting about the same things and I mean maybe that's just partly reading it all at once and not reading it in installments but you know I don't know I don't know I I, I don't think I liked it as much as as the two of you liked it and I guess I'm just trying to sort of work through why because I'm seeing what you're saying about the deconstructive aspects of, about it and stuff and I'm just sort of like okay well a superhero who well supervillain whatever in this case person with superpowers who's experiencing the consequences of that it's like okay well i mean isn't that just the thing i mean it's not really that different <laughs> is it and i mean it's different in the sense that the thing got to be redeemed by the fantastic four and didn't go in this direction which is the direction he would have gone in if it was a more realistic comic right and yet i don't know i don't know i don't know i'm i'm, I'm reaching for things and i'm, I'm not figuring them out properly yeah. i think we need to get into some more specifics well that's kind of brubaker's well, shtick with Astro City, right? To take a very well-known superhero trope and poke at it a little bit to go into a little deeper. I mean, the the outline of this story, as, like Steeljack's origin, is basically the origin of a half dozen different Spider-Man villains. Yeah, We just go a little step further, and not even that much of a step further. Like, you could put Sandman in this role if you really wanted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's valuable, though. I mean, I will say, because I feel like I've been very negative, so I'll say something positive. I do think the space that it is able to devote to that introspection is really important. It does feel a lot different than monthly superhero comics, you know, then or now. I mean, it is a lot more sort of realistically emotional in a lot of ways. And I think that is to its credit, like to the extent that the emotional beats land even though I just complained about the lengthiness, I mean, getting inside the character psychology is why it lands. We talked about uh, the way that issues of gender in particular don't quite work in criminal. Uh, what about that same subject for Astro City? And I, we can expand that to intersectional approach as well, the way that it handles uh, race, because uh, the villain of this story is basically Spanish Batman. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, yeah, he's Zorro. Doesn't that just mean Zorro? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or yes, uh, um, Batman is American Zorro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be yeah, more accurate. I mean, yeah, I, I liked some of the things that it did. I mean, definitely my second favorite scene was that shower scene, and I really wish it had done more with that. And I was a bit, this is me, so of course I was wishing that we talked more about the sexuality angle. Because there's the shower scene and we're not sure what the situation is with his entire body and it's not really clear. And it's funny that it's not really clear because there are so many other interesting details there. I mean, he's talking about like buffing out his love handles and he's talking about the specific care that he takes with his steel body. And I found that really, really interesting. These were these sort of like... I would love that for the thing, you know, thinking, talking about how he has yeah. a shower and how he cares for his rock hide and stuff. And those questions I am super, super interested in. And we never get those questions answered in superhero comics outside of fan fiction. So I was very intrigued by that. But it was very silent on the sexual angle, like throughout. There was just no sexuality with this character at all. And I found that a strange and interesting omission. I mean, maybe that's just a choice that was made for this character. But again, I kept thinking back to Marvels and how there was a lot of silence about that there as well, mm. despite sexual inadequacy being like a heavy metaphor throughout and yet yep. it was similarly absent and i was like wondering like is that like sort of the cutoff or i mean astro city is a very mature series in some ways but is that just 
we can't deal with that topic. That's just too that's just too adult for this particular series. I wasn't sure. Well, um, this seems like a good moment for me to uh, publicly apologize for misattributing a very graphic uh, Ant-Man and Wasp sex scene to Beauty at once <laughs> and being called out by him for oh. it. Uh, so maybe, yes, that is uh, a limit to how far he wants to go, and I'm not going to <laughs> be the one to stand against that one. At least not. All had stand-ins with Busick. But yeah, I mean, that's certainly a, a fan question that people ask a lot of Colossus about the nature of... Yeah. Because there's a lot of different ways you can go with that. Can you feel when you're in your metal state? Is it like this phallic irony where you become hyper phallic and lose access to your sexuality? There's a lot of interesting questions bound up in that that are not approached in this text. And again, that's just me having my very subjective personal complaint. But I did really like the shower scene a lot. I think that's a valid complaint, though. Like, again, if you're trying to do a, a gritty, realistic portrayal, I, I feel like the sexuality element has to at least be explored to make it feel grounded, right? As you said, it's a conspicuous silence. Yeah, it's interesting that this is a noir story that doesn't have a sexual element, particularly. Which is a relief in some ways, given... <laughs> yes, given the treatment of, that women typically yeah. get in these stories. Yeah. But I mean, we have the mock turtle story that has a little bit of that too, which I mean, <laughs> see, this is one of the Astro City things. You'll just have a whole issue devoted to the mock turtle and then he just dies. And it's an interesting story and I enjoyed it. But at the same time, it's so invested in wanting to come up with these backstories and textures for its world. And those things don't always play off to the satisfying degree that I would want them to, but that's completely a complaint that you can make about every single serialized superhero comic, so it's barely a complaint. <laughs> like, I mean, did you think of this as deconstructive of, of masculine tropes or doing something interesting with them or just sort no. of exploring them with more... Oh, no, you're already like, no. <laughs> no, I, yeah, and again, I think that's part of the trappings of the noir, because the noir is all about masculinity, uh, which is both a strength and a weakness, because I, I do think there's a lot of value there to sort of in, interrogating masculinity. Um, and in particular, demystifying the the hard guy, um, you know, you know, showing how they're they're suffering rather than um, you know, becoming heroes. And I, I think we're seeing that with Steeljack, right? His journey to become a hero. Um, I do think there's that implicit sexuality that's you know native to the superhero genre, um, where being a superhero is a very kind of phallic endeavor. Uh, it, it's asserting a, a certain like potency, um, and I do like that he fails in that regard but i don't think he ever really explores what that would mean in terms of the sexual symbolism so to me it's kind of um similar to what i was talking about with criminal I, I think it's something where there was an opportunity was missed but it's also something that where maybe if you did take up that opportunity you'd be deviating too far from the genre tropes that you're trying to participate in so i, I end up feeling exactly as i said with brubaker that the story is kind of trapped by the noir I mean, do you guys have any interest in talking about the racial stuff in Astro City? Because it just, it, it was weird to me. I think, yeah, because Michael introduced it. You could articulate yeah. the theory on that. That'd be great. Well, I mean, I don't know that I have sort of a real complex take on it other than there were a lot of like tropes about Latino men going on here that I was not comfortable with them hammering so hard on. And there's some complexity yeah. introduced in the sense that there's El Hombre and his sidekick who are different characters and the relationship is complicated enough that it's not just tropes. But at the same time, like... A Latino character who is so insecure about his masculinity that he becomes hysterical in that regard and a fool and fallible. It's just, it's a lot. It was a lot of stuff and I didn't care for it. And it went so heavy on it because he has the initial story of, you know, being, you know, hysterically obsessed with his masculinity and trying to reclaim it and then that gets repeated in like him doing mm -hmm. that again in the climax and yeah i don't know and like his ethnic identity being very very heavily emphasized by the choice of superhero monikers that he has i just wasn't really sure what was going on there this isn't representation this is just no. taking tropes and doing them yeah and that bothered it, me it strikes me as the same thing as criminal that it's taking like the superhero trope of maybe there's even like taking in both of the 
kind of aspects of superhero history, the really heavy-handed diversity characters as opposed to the next generation that's a little more nuanced, but it's not really doing anything with that, I don't think. Yeah, like, I mean, that would be more like a reference to kind of characters from the 70s or something, right? Where we're mm-hmm. having sort of a diversifying of the superhero genre, but the characters are sort of overly identified with their rush- racial and ethnic identities. And it seemed mm-hmm. like the El Hombre character was kind of in that conversation. Yeah, <laughs> he's overdetermined. There was, there was no subversion of that. And in fact, it sort of played into the tropes in an exaggerated way that I was honestly confused. I didn't get what it was going for. I didn't get whether it was conscious of the tropes it was mobilizing because it mobilized them so directly that I had a hard time believing it wasn't conscious of them. And yet this character had so little complexity compared to the complexity that the Steeljack character is given. So yeah, didn't care for it. I agree with you, so I do not like playing devil's advocate in this one. So maybe I won't. (laughs) No, absolutely, because I'm honestly like looking for a way to read it with like a little bit more complexity other than this otherwise good story is organized around a story of, you know, I mean, a villain who is, as I said before, you know, a Latino character who's over-invested in his masculinity and is activated by the shame of that to become a supervillain. It's mm. bad. And I really want a way to read that more complexly. So if you have any other take on it that helps <laughs> me, I am happy to hear it. All right. Um, here goes. Uh, there's a line when he is going over his origin story about the fact that he kind of sees it as a... Uh, I don't see race almost in terms of his version of equality as opposed to the one that he sees coming up around him. And maybe you could read his like response as like a failure to come to terms with that, that he, he is feels both the outsider and the trying to conform to this standard and not reaching it. But I think that idea might be nascent, but not brought out. No, you're absolutely right, because there's that contrast between him and the next generation who has the more nuanced sort of understanding of race. And I mean, that's that's realistic, too, in terms of generational reactions to social justice issues. But I mean, I guess where I'm feeling like it's failing is because the character falls so hard into the tropification part of it, like almost increasingly as the comic goes on, rather than Mm -hmm. that sort of becoming more complex like it starts in a more complex place and gets increasingly less complex so i just at the very least i will say that i don't think it was handled well but you're right to bring that up michael because that is introduced sort of as a conflict between you know his generation and the younger generation represented by his sidekick who we see you know having a different relationship with the community that's not so over invested in personal glory So in our previous episode, we looked at a pair of pretty bombastic, really visually and scene-stealing kind of supervillains in the form of Dr. Doom and Darth Vader. And I was curious about the contrast that these two works set up with that in terms of how do you think these contrasts work out? Is there something we can say about the comic book villain based on those Uh, differing ideals. I think what makes Criminal really interesting is the extent to which it makes zero effort for you to like Riley. Riley is relatable-ish for just like, you know, your basic suburban guy down on his luck. Um, But other than that, like there's nothing here to soften him the way that we saw when we talked about Darth Vader and Doctor Doom. You know, Doctor Doom fighting for his mom and Darth Vader, you know, fighting for his approval of the Emperor kind of thing. Uh, There's no code of honor whatsoever there's just this really sketchy horrible human being Um, but you spend four issues in his brain and see his interior monologue you i don't think at any point root for him in the slightest Um, i think that's actually a really cool point of comparison to what we see with steeljack where i I think we are rooting for him i think we are trying to um, give him goals that the reader identifies with do you really think that we don't root for riley absolutely not no I, I, I want him to get caught. I mean, I'm I, angry I, at the end. Yeah, like, I agree. But I think that kind of story where you are sort of forced into a character's perspective is you're forced to identify with them on some level. And I almost think what makes a story like that 
good is because we're put in this moral quandary of you know this maybe you want to see him get, maybe yeah well no i mean yeah maybe you, you do want to see him get caught but at the same time we haven't most of us hopefully had plans to murder somebody but you know we've had <laughs> i hope that something that i like put into you know whatever action works out and you can apply that to this and I don't know, because there is the fear of getting caught. Like, so, I mean, I just feel like I was reading it. And when you read a lot of these sort of crime stories, if they're written from yeah. the perspective of, of the criminal, it's not that you identify with them like you think that you're them, but you become invested in what happens to them. So even though that's not identification and maybe you want them to get caught, there is a tension present there about whether they're going to get caught yeah. or not because you are sutured into their perspective. And that's the distinction I would make, though, the distinction between tension and desire. Like, I feel anxious about the net that's closing in against Riley, but I want that net to succeed, right? I I want Lizzie to be safe so she can go on being a perfect, idealistic human being with no Or you want, uh, like, something (laughs) to happen to save Freakout. Justice for Freakout. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, for for Freakout definitely was a very sympathetic character in this text. But, I mean, getting back to our previous episode, it does the similar thing that the Darth Vader series does where everybody else is such an asshole that you don't mind rooting right. for an asshole like and i'm not saying that we're necessarily rooting for riley but at the same time it's like who yeah. would i feel good winning this story but like, that's also nobody. part of the misogyny too right yeah. like the portrayal of his wife is rough uh and you know points to this idea that, that he was almost right to kill her and again i know it's his perspective but but it's so misogynistic that when we don't have that redemption through the Lizzie character, um, it, it does read as, as kind of unredeemable uh, from a gendered perspective, for me at least. Well, what do you consider, if it's an EC story, like what is the twist? So like is the twist him getting away with it? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And in the EC I comics, mean, it, they, they basically never do that. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's the subversion, right? This Which isn't is a world where because... divine justice is a thing. Yeah, which is funny because I mean, Wortham's critique is that these stories are immoral, and yet the the bad guys never get away with it. That, you know, exactly. Some very rare examples, but but um, but yeah, but I mean, it was the conclusion was shocking in the sense that you sort of expected the story to go on, and then there's just that yeah. concluding yeah, panel of him walking away in the Archie style, and you're like, oh, and I did think that was very effective. But um, but yeah, I don't know. It's making me think about the ways that sort of identification and agency work in a story like this, which I guess is good. That means it's a good yeah. story. Yeah, good questions. Which is again like something you would never get with our own or the other supervillains because their stories will not end. Even though we know where Vader dies, his story does not end. Right. Uh, what about the Astro City side of things then? If uh, Riley is a made even more unlikable than these supervillains who have a much higher body toll. Where does Steeljack fit in? I did like what it did because first it was kind of going to the direction of look at all these tragic stories the villains have and look how it was. I don't know how I want to put this. I mean, villains are often defined by their emotional instability you know by mm-hmm. them having goals that are about self-aggrandizement and because i mean if the goal was just to get rich obviously they could do that but those aren't the goals they get caught up in these megal you know these like ego battles and 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 sort of emotional instabilities and that is sort of the nature of their downfall and we see that playing out again and again and again with all of the villains that steeljack interacts with and we see that playing out with steeljack himself as well i mean even his motivation was just to become big and strong and because that was his motivation that's his hubris and that becomes the price that he has to pay I mean, but we see how that happens with the supervillains as well as the superheroes through that comparison with El Hombre, right? And I mean, to the extent that I think that that story is valuable, that's one of the ways that it's valuable, you know, seeing that the same insecurities are sort of animating a character like that as well. And I thought that was a good kind of, not twist, I wouldn't go that far, but at least a point of complexity that I enjoyed Mm. in the story. One of the things that I wasn't sure about is that there's a class critique kind of going on here in terms of the access of certain people to certain things and the heavy suggestion being that because of the class status of the people who become supervillains in this world, they don't have access to being superheroes. Mm-hmm. 
And I was thinking about how that related to, you know, we can talk about superhero powers versus supervillain powers and how superheroes and supervillains are granted different powers often. And I did think the Steeljack character was an interesting concept in the sense that the powers that he has would typically be associated with hero powers. Um, and so some of the yeah. distinctions there, you know, like villain powers are often uh gender sexually deviant they often have sort of an instability to them they often have an unsettling hybridity to them you know you can think about the differences between spider-man sort of is part spider but he incorporates that in a beautiful way rather than a disturbing way he is a little bit freakish and disturbing but certainly not the way dr octopus is freakish and disturbing where he's got the huge mechanical arms situated outside of his body so his hybridity is less attractive and more unstable and more frightening and more monstrous vader and doom too right yeah yeah for sure right they have sort of their excessive emotionality is sort of replicated in the excesses of their bodies right so Steeljack is an interesting example because he has, you know, hero powers effectively, right? Like becoming a big, hard, strong steel guy should be a hero power because it is so redeemably phallic, right? It is not unstable in the way a villain's powers typically are. And yet we see him sort of being forced into this villain role through and because and in interaction with those powers so i thought that that was an interesting choice if you'd given him a very a more stereotypically villainous body i don't think the story would have been as complicated and so that was a point in Hmm. its favor i thought when it comes to the especially the kind of class uh critique here that busiek offers examples of people who went the other route but like were similar backgrounds to him but kind of became heroes but i don't think he dwells on them as much like the irregulars i think are composed of some people who have more villainous origins but it's they're just present and the the deeper juxtaposition there is only meaningful if you're more familiar with the rest of astro city Mm. i loved the irregulars just as an aside (laughs) that name brought me such delight (laughs) it was so 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 good I mean, you know, they're like the defenders or the outsiders or, you know, various other teams, but just the irregulars was so on the nose. I loved it so much. And that brings us to the end of another episode. Uh, We will wrap things up with recommendations, a set of texts that we think resonate well with what we've been discussing today. Uh, I'll kick it off with a cheat that I'm going to recommend a video game. This is by Inkle Studios, available on mobile and many other devices called Overboard, where you play as a 1940s femme fatale who has just thrown her husband overboard on a cruise ship and now must lie her way through the next eight hours until they land in New York. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. I'm going to recommend um, something very, very directly tied to this. Um, There's an old EC Comics series called Shock Suspense Stories. It's not the one that um, Brubaker is riffing on. He's riffing on crime suspense stories. But Shock Suspense Stories takes this exact same framework and and builds it around issues of social justice. Um, And sometimes beautifully, sometimes clunkily. um, But it's a really, I mean, my complaint with Brubaker was just that I, I felt like this series could do more. Uh, that it could offer more than just the kind of nostalgia component. Um, and, and I think shock suspense stories shows sort of what you can do with this crime story framework in terms of um, engaging us into questions of like, you know, justice uh, and maybe even things more, more profound than that. So if anyone wants to check that out, uh, EC comics has been reprinting them pretty much always <laughs> every decade. It seems to have a new edition coming out. Uh, or you can find them online, and they're 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 pretty thought provoking despite the age. All right, well, I came up with a couple of recommendations. Um, I think I've probably recommended this one before, possibly in the Daredevil episode. I don't remember, but um, <laughs> the Ed Brooker Baker Daredevil, Daredevil comic, um, the trade paperback version is called "The Devil Inside and Out," and the artist is Michael Lark. It was from two thousand and six. 
I like loved this comic. Daredevil gets sent to prison and has to fight his way out of prison and has all of the inevitable conflicts of interest that would happen when that happens to him. They've been doing a similar storyline um, in the Chip Zdarsky Daredevil right now. And I liked the Ed Brubaker one so much that it has really impacted my enjoyment of the current one. And I don't know. <laughs> I think it's great. And I would definitely recommend it. Um, my other recommendation is going to be the speaking of chip sadarsky the chip sadarsky and erica henderson jughead series from 2016 which is a good tie-in with our modern archie conversation um Mm. and is very interesting and a lot of fun and definitely exploits the genre bending genre mixing that the archie franchise and the character of jughead in particular um um, (laughs) makes available Yes, I love both of those comics very much. I still haven't read The Daredevil. I gotta check that out. That's it for this month. Next month, we'll be reading Jim Starlin's Mega Saga, starring Adam Warlock, and Silver Surfer Inner Demons by J.M. DeMattius, Ron Garney, and others. We'll talk to you then.